Lord's given me a message for this hour that will be pertinent, applicable, and directed to your heart by the Holy Spirit. So we want to pray that God will give us receptive minds, hearts, spirits to receive God's Word today. And I'm going to ask you to listen carefully today and take what God says as the application you need to make to your life, the application of God's Word. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit will give words that are anointed, empowered, emblazoned with the fire of truth to reach into the hearts of every person here today. We believe you're ready to do great things and are doing mighty things, Lord. And we're seeing the work of the Holy Spirit because of people praying and because prayers are being answered. We ask that today, Lord, we'll continue that, that we'll see continued in this service today as we've already seen, work of the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of God, as we rejoice together around your truth revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and made known to us in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Bless your word today and your servant bringing it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The cross of Jesus stands in bold relief, in emphasis against every other thing in the world. Nothing. Not the tallest buildings built, not the highest mountains in existence. Nothing overshadows the appearance, the presence, the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ as we look upon it in this world today as a testimony to him. You see the cross in lots of places. The important thing that we need to know is that the power of the cross is resident in Jesus Christ. And if we were to look for one word that we would put as a banner to emblazon a over the head of the cross of the Savior. I believe I know what that word would be. I think of many words. It could be, it could be salvation. It could be redemption. It could be victory. It could be forgiveness. It could be grace. It could be mercy. But I believe there's one word that epitomizes the cross with greater effect than any other word that could come out of the Scriptures. One word that speaks all that the cross is, and all that the cross means. And when we understand the depth of it, we will see just how powerful that word is in declaring, in declaring the message of the cross of Jesus. That one word, in a banner across, superimposed over the cross, that one word is obedience. Obedience. And not only is that word expressive of all that the cross means, it is also true that that word brings the message of the cross to us in our lives today. A message that we ought to grasp and understand as coming from the very heart of Father God. 
Jesus came to this earth in, in, in human form. That we know. He lived among us as a young man, lived among us as a man, as a human being, just as we are, except in perfection. At the same time, he was completely God. But this is what the Scripture says about that incarnation of the Savior when he came to earth through the virgin birth. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came into obedience to Father God as he became the greatest sacrifice ever offered on the altar for salvation for the sins of the world. This is what the New Living Translation says of that verse. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. I want to show you how important obedience is in understanding the cross. That's why the Word of God emphasizes it so strongly connected with the cross of Jesus and how the message of the cross, while it brings us salvation and forgiveness, adoption presents us the message of grace and mercy, salvation, redemption. It all happened because of the obedience of the Savior. It could not have happened if Jesus were not obedient to the calling of Father God and was willing to fulfill the purpose that he was sent into this world to accomplish. He was in human form, as human as we are. And yet, in a state of perfection, even in his birth, because of that, Jesus was able to offer the full sacrifice, the eternal, not the once again, they repeated again and again and again through the economy of the Old Testament. Once and for all, the Lamb of God offered on the altar of the cross as a sacrifice for sin because he was obedient. The message of the cross starts early in the ministry of Jesus. Again and again, he told his disciples that he was going to be taken at the hands of cruel, sinful men. He told them he'd be persecuted. He told them he would die. He even told them he would rise again. All of these things he taught them as they walked along the shores of, sea, of Galilee Sea and up and down the dusty roads of Judea. All of these things he taught them, and he said it more than one time, again and again. If you read the four Gospels, you'll find Jesus telling his disciples over and over what was going to happen to him. And yet they never fully received it. It was beyond their comprehension that this person could experience such a death as he was telling them would happen. Until finally they saw it and knew it with their own eyes. And that brought a lot of complication into their lives because they had not believed it up until that point that he would actually be killed and would actually die. It took them a long time before they really absorbed the full message of the cross 
and realize the power of that death on Golgotha and his resurrection from the tomb on the third day. Preparation for that, after the Lord's Supper was instituted in the upper room and several other things occurred, Jesus and his disciples walked out and they went into the, toward a place of prayer. They arrived at the place called Gethsemane. And when they walked into Gethsemane, they walked into a dark night, to a rough ground. Some have called it a garden. The Bible doesn't actually say that Gethsemane was a garden. There were times that they went into a garden. It doesn't specifically say Gethsemane was that garden. I think Gethsemane was a place of hard, rocky ground. I'll tell you why in just a moment. They went into Gethsemane to pray. All the disciples who were there, they followed him in. Some of them sat down at the very opening of the area as they walked into it. Jesus asked three of them to come further with him and walk a little on in toward the center of the area. And he said to Peter, James, and John, come on with me. And they did. And then he said, wait right here for me while I go and pray. Now, always in times of crisis, always in times of blessing, always in times of sparsity, and always in times of fullness, you will find that Jesus prayed. He went out alone into the mountains to pray. He went out, the Bible says, sometimes in desolate places to pray. But he always went to prayer. It's a complicated thing to understand the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But that relationship is there. One God and three distinct persons. Jesus called upon Father God frequently, repeatedly, really without ceasing. And on this occasion when he walked into Gethsemane, it was an understanding in his heart that he had already come to long before. He had long practiced communication with the Father. Now this time he goes deep into the area of Gethsemane. And the Bible doesn't say that he knelt down in some composed way. The pictures that you see of Jesus in Gethsemane, where he's in striking some pose with a halo painted around him, are far from accurate according to the scriptures. When Jesus walked on into Gethsemane, he fell on his face, the Bible says, on rocky ground, on rough terrain, he fell down before Father God on his face, crying out to the Father. All that he said, we don't know for sure. But we do know that this was the primary th thrust of his prayer as he agonized with the Father about the cross. As he cried out to the Father about the cross. All he was talking to the Father about was the cross because he understood and had long understood his destiny was the cross, crucifixion, and death at the hands of evil, sinful men. Now he's face to face with it, a few hours away, and it's becoming more intense with him by the moment. That burden is settling upon him. Not just the fact of dying in a humiliating way. Not just the fact of dying in pain and suffering. But the fact of dying as sin. The fact of being made sin in the eyes of his Father, actually becoming sin, 
And the Bible says very clearly, He became sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, the Bible says, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The Son of Man died so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. In that sacrifice, there was a great price that Jesus paid because this sinless Lamb of God became sin in the eyes of the Father as the sacrifice for the forgiveness of all the people in the world who would ever call on his name and ask for salvation. In Gethsemane he suffered, and he cried out to be delivered if it's possible. This is what he said according to the record of the Scriptures, which is recorded in three Gospels. Father, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, if it's possible that I will not have to drink this cup, let it, let it be removed. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Nevertheless, nevertheless, if I have to drink this bitter cup, if I have to pay this price of sin on an ugly cross, if I have to die at the hands of cruel men, if I have to die so that there will be offspring forever brought into salvation through this sacrifice, I will pay that price. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If it were possible for the world to be saved without Jesus dying, he would rather not have done it. And yet he willingly gave himself up to the sacrificial death that he died on the cross. And that's exactly what Gethsemane teaches us. He prayed one time, went back to see his disciples. They were too tired to bother with him. He went back and prayed again three times. Every time he went back to pray, in the depth of Gethsemane, he prayed the same thing. If it's possible, Lord. If there's any way, Father, that the world can be saved without my having to drink the bitter dregs of this cup of sin for the world, if there's any way that can happen, deliver me from it. But I will be willing to die. I will be willing to give my life. I will give myself up, lest any person who needs to be saved ever has to be turned away from the kingdom and sent to hell. I am willing to die for the sins of your creation. I give it up. I am obedient. I will die in obedience to the will and the plan of God, Jesus said. Now, what an example that is. What an example that is. And so the cross, the cross is first of all a message of total and complete obedience. That's the first message of Jesus on the cross. Total and complete obedience. I struggled for a long time try to really understand what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. He said it five different times in the Gospels. A little bit different circumstances each time, but he said, take up your cross and follow me. And there are a lot of people who have misunderstood that, and some things later on over in the New Testament have added to that misunderstanding. I'm going to try to clarify that for you this morning, too. When he said, take up your cross and follow me, what was he saying? Was he saying, go out and get your cross made and 
put it on your shoulder and drag it around with you? Get up every day and go out and pick it. Every time you go to the grocery store, put it on your shoulder, drag it with you? Of course not. There are people who have done things like that as testimonies. I'm not quarreling with that. If they're led to do that, go ahead and do it. That's not what Jesus was telling us to do. That could be a good thing. It can bless people perhaps. But that's not what Jesus was telling us to do. And he said to you and to me, you and me, every single one of us, he said, take up your cross daily and follow after me. What was he saying? He certainly wasn't telling us that we ought to go out and suffer like he did. Not telling us to go out and find somebody to drive nails in our hands. He's not telling us to go out and get our back striped to get ready to die on the cross. No. What he's saying is, I believe when he's saying, take up your cross and follow me, I believe he's saying, find the path of total obedience to God and follow that path of total obedience. And absolute obedience. Not only total and absolute obedience, but obedience regardless of what the cost is for that obedience. Regardless of what the price is that has to be paid for that obedience. Regardless of what it's going to bring to you in suffering and difficulty. Whatever it brings, take that cross of total and complete obedience and walk in absolute obedience to me every single day and moment of your life. That's a challenge. I know it is. That's a challenge. And yet I believe that's exactly what Jesus was telling us to do when five times he said in the, in the four Gospels that you are to take up your cross, all of us, take up your cross and follow after me. You know, obedience is, is the key to the Christian life. If you will learn to obey, walk with God in obedience, you can live in victory. It, obedience takes faith. Obedience takes trust. You cannot walk in obedience without faith in Him, without trusting Him, because you have to walk by faith and not by sight. But obedience is what is required for the servant of God. The child of God, to live in victory, to walk in victory, has to walk in obedience to him. There's a classic example of this. A lot of people refer to it. They just know a few words about it. Maybe they don't know the whole thing. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul, over the nation that God had created and, 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 and put him forward as king, led his soldiers into battle against the Amalekites. They were reaping the judgment of God on the Amalekites. And though God's word came through the prophet Samuel to destroy all the Amalekites and everything that they had, to just wipe them out. That was a judgment of God. So Saul went to battle with the Amalekites. And at the end of the battle, when God gave the victory to the Israelite soldiers, Saul spared the life of the king of the Amalekites, King Agag, took him back to his home and palace with him. And not only did he spare the king, he saved the best of all of the uh, herds and the best of all of the plunder of the battle so that he would have that available to him. Now, when God came and told Samuel what Saul had done, God said, I repent that I ever anointed him king and made him king over Israel. But I will take his kingdom away. And God did exactly that. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen the next day or two. 
But a progression started at that time when God took the kingdom away from King Saul, allowed him to be destroyed in battle, and anointed and appointed David as the king of Israel. And David reigned for many years as king. When Samuel came to Saul about that, and he said, he said, God has said that you haven't obeyed him. And Saul said, oh, yes, 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 prophet. We have obeyed God. But what about the king? Oh, I spared him out of mercy. What about the blading of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? What is the sound of all these animals if you obeyed God when he told you to destroy them all? And Saul said, oh, my soldiers kept them out. I didn't do it. Somebody else did. Always an excuse. And we make them all the time. So Saul said, I didn't do that, but my soldiers did. And he said, and their plan was to offer these excellent animals as sacrifices to you. Now, that might have been fine in any other circumstance. But God had said in that particular case, destroy everything. The Amalekites and all that they have are to be destroyed totally. And that you have to do in order to obey God. He did not do that. He saved the king. He saved some of the animals. His intention was not to sacrifice them either. He saved out the best of them for his own purposes and for his own desires. And Samuel, the prophet, knew that. But Samuel declared to him, it doesn't matter what you're, if you declare your motives to be good, if you're going to offer sacrifice to the Father, that's one thing. But the fact of the matter is that God the Father told you to do something you didn't do, and he's not interested in sacrifices. He's interested in obedience. And that's where Samuel gave these words that we've referred to so many different times. To obey is better than sacrifice. It is better to obey, to do what God tells you to do in any circumstance, in every circumstance. Do what God says. Do what God's Word says. Live by the commandments of the Lord. Please God by obeying Him and honor Him by obeying Him. It doesn't matter what you plan to do with the fruits of your disobedience. You may have a good purpose, you think. But it doesn't matter because what really matters is obeying God and doing what God has said to do. I'm going to tell you how serious this is. In the very next verse, Samuel said that there's a further thing that you need to understand. He said, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than the offering of lambs. And then he said, disobedience is rebellion, and rebellion is witchcraft. You may be reading a version that says, rebellion is divination. It's the same thing, witchcraft. The King James says witchcraft, and, and, and several others of the translations say witchcraft. Rebellion is disobeying God. When you disobey God, and you know that God has said this, God has said do this, this is the plan, this is the direction, this is the way, this is the way you're to go, and you know that God has spoken, and God has given direction, and you decide to take a different course and do it a different way and not do what God has said to do, that is rebellion. And he said, Samuel said, recorded in God's word, that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's a serious, serious thing, my friend, to be caught up in witchcraft because of rebellion. I say to you, 
that that is something that you have to overcome. And to overcome it, you can only by obedience and by walking with the Lord and following what the Lord has said. It's a tragic thing to be caught in disobedience to God. And Jesus showed us the way of obedience by giving himself up to the worst possible thing he could endure, an ignominious crucifixion in suffering on the cross. But he did it for us to show the value of obeying Father God. When we do and fulfill the plan of God, it's a victory that comes out of that. A victory follows that. A victory comes because we obey God. And a victory came to Jesus because he obeyed the Father. So, another place that I pondered for a long time, as I read the third chapter of Philippians, and by the way, Philippians chapter 3 is a powerful chapter. A powerful chapter. I strongly recommend that you read Philippians chapter 3 as soon as possible and read it a few times. In that chapter, you will find Paul longing to be closer, closer, closer to the Lord. And he says that I want to know him. Paul says, I want to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection. And then he said, and in the fellowship of his suffering. And I tried for a long time to comprehend how I could be a part of the fellowship of his suffering. First of all, what does that mean? You know, there are people who believe in this world today that the more you suffer physically, the more pain you endure, the more you're like Jesus, the more you're following God. There are people who practice self-flagellation. You see these people climbing up these steep stairs, some of them over rough stones, some of them over rocky area, climbing with a whip beating themselves on the back at certain times of the year, and that's all supposed to draw them closer to God because they're entering into the suffering of Jesus. It is a total misunderstanding. That's nothing the Bible ever suggested, or nothing that God ever wanted, nothing that honors God whatsoever. But here's what does, God, uh, does honor God. This is what always honors God. This is what honors God every time, in every instance, in every circumstance, in every challenge. Every time what honors God is when you obey Him. So the fellowship of His suffering in, Get- in Gethsemane, He cried out, If it's possible, let this come pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He entered into the obedience to the will of the Father and to in. Develop yourself in the fellowship of his sufferings is to totally yield yourself, involve yourself in living in obedience to God the Father. That is identifying yourself with the fellowship of his sufferings. If you will live in obedience, that's better than anything you might possibly impose on yourself physically. What you impose on yourself physically, thinking that you're Suffering like Jesus has no spiritual value whatsoever. Won't help you get closer to God. Won't help you understand anything any better. In fact, it probably turns you the other direction. But what does bring you closer to God, into the fellowship of knowing Him, coming into the understanding of the power of His resurrection, is obedience to Him. The fellowship of His sufferings is absolutely, totally, completely committed 
to obedience to Him. So when you look at what the Bible says, I know this is a, maybe a departure from, from some of the ways that you've understood this. But I, 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 can't, I, can't find it, I can't find anything reasonable any other way. After, after struggling with take up your cross and follow me for a long time, and after struggling with what Paul said, he wants to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering, prayerfully seeking God, I, I, I saw this, I believe I see this as an understanding of what God is saying by all of it. Relate it to Gethsemane, where Jesus gave up himself and gave up all to the will of the Father, obedient to the will of Father God, which led him to the cross, ultimately led him to the resurrection. But it led him into that great, great time of suffering when he had to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? And then, to know that he was in complete obedience at the end of his death on the cross, when he gave up the Spirit and said, Father, into your hands I commit my Spirit. Total and complete and unreserved obedience to the will of God the Father. Now, there will be people who don't understand the depth of what I'm saying today. I, I, I know that. I know that. Because what I'm sharing with you today is something that that is deeper than words. It's deeper than just teaching this. It's something that I believe has to be grasped by the Spirit. has to be understood in the Spirit in our lives. That every day we're to get up and, and only say the things that are honoring to God. Only develop the thoughts and motives that are honoring to God. That in every way, at all times, through everything in our lives, if we want to draw near to God, be in the fellowship of the Calvary, the fellowship of the cross, the fellowship of his suffering, the fellowship of his victory, which is what that is, is suffering producing great victory. In the fellowship of Jesus, the depth of it is realized and perfected in our obedience of walking with him. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let that sink into you. Dwell on that today. I need to walk in complete obedience to God. And walking in complete obedience to God will put you into the fellowship, in the depth of the fellowship of His suffering that nothing else can take you into. It will take you there. That's what I want for every single one of us. That's the victory that I want for every single one of us, to enjoy that and to experience that and to have that obedience, to live that obedience that brings the victory of the Lord totally and completely into our lives. Stand with me, please. As you stand right now, 